Hey y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today, which means you might hear two hosts. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's October 22nd. The Great Disappointment of the Millerites took place on this day in 1844. This disappointment was rooted in a prediction, and the prediction was rooted in the idea of millenarianism, which was an increasingly popular idea in the 1800s. Millenarianism stemmed from a concept in the book of Revelation that associated with the last judgment would be the establishment by Jesus Christ of a 1,000-year kingdom of God on earth. This idea was also drawing out of the Second Great Awakening, which was a time of religious revival in the United States and parts of Europe. At the heart of this particular prediction was William Miller. He was a farmer and had served in the War of 1812. He had studied the Bible extensively, although he didn't have a formal education in theology. And he believed that when it came to the Bible, every day that was described was really a year. And he focused on a passage in the Bible that referenced a period of 1,260 days. He started with that, and then he came up with a lot of really complicated equations. Based on these equations, in September of 1822, he told some people he knew that he had calculated when Christ would return to earth. The world would end. The righteous would ascend to heaven. He said he knew when this was going to happen. It was only when he started giving public lectures on this idea about nine years later that it really started to catch on. Publisher Joshua Von Himes helped publicize his work. Miller had his own tent for holding public addresses and basically revivals. There were numerous Millerite publications, numerous meetings where he talked about this whole idea and he gained so many followers. The followers that he gained became known as the Millerites. But... He still wasn't announcing the exact date of Christ's return at this point. At first, he said it would just be sometime in 1843 or 1844, and some of his followers latched onto the idea of March 21st of 1843. Miller himself, though, said that it could go all the way to a year after that, March 21st of 1844. When on March 22nd of 1844, nothing had happened, they thought perhaps they had been right with the equations, but wrong with the calendar. They switched to using the Kararite calendar instead of the rabbinic one, and they started plotting now for the date to be April 18th of 1844, and that date came and went too. This time, the Millerites suspected that they had started a period of waiting that is referenced in a couple of parts of the Bible. This period of waiting is known as the tarrying time. And then that August, Samuel S. Snow proposed another date, October 22nd of 1844. When that date came and went, and nothing had happened, the movement really fell apart. It's called the Great Disappointment because the Millerites weren't dreading the end of the world. They were eagerly looking forward to it. They thought they were going to be among the people who would ascend into heaven. They would get to meet Jesus Christ. This was now obviously not going to happen. There were still a few Millerites who held out hope after the date of the Great Disappointment of October 22nd. Some of them had given away all of their belongings in preparation for the end of the world. At its peak, there had been as many as a million adherents to this idea, although all million of them had not given away their possessions in preparation for it. 
Some former Millerites went on to establish other religions, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Ellen Harmon, who later married James White and co-founded the church, had been one of those who were disappointed in the Great Disappointment. Some of the disappointed, though, really saw the Great Disappointment as fulfilling its own prophecy. Miller died in Hampton, New York, on December 20th of 1849. Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis for his research work on today's episode and to Tari Harrison for all of her audio work on this podcast. You can subscribe to this day in history class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for a war that was a lot more serious than its name suggests. Hello, history lovers. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a show that uncovers history one day at a time. The day was October 22, 1966. The Supremes' ninth album, The Supremes' A Go-Go, reached number one on the Billboard Top 200. That made the Supremes the first all-women group to top the U.S. Billboard 200, a chart ranking the most popular music albums in the States. The Supremes signed to Motown Records in 1961, and they were the label's most commercially successful act. They were styled in fancy gowns, wigs, and makeup, and performed simple but graceful choreography. Motown executive Barry Gordy capitalized on the group's crossover appeal. Many Black rock and roll acts faced difficulty in gaining popularity with white audiences, and white musicians who covered their songs would get more attention for the music than the original performers. But the Supremes were popular with white audiences and topped the pop charts frequently, thanks to their pop appeal and the way they incorporated rock and roll and R&B into their music. They made it onto several talk shows, idealizing Barry Gordy's vision of a respectable, versatile, and sophisticated Black musical group. Backed by the songwriting and production of Brian Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Eddie Holland, the Supremes achieved pop fame. They made the top spot on the Billboard Hot 100 12 times, and in 1964 and 1965, they had five consecutive number one pop hits. Songs like Where Did Our Love Go, Baby Love, Come See About Me, and Stop in the Name of Love made it to the top position. But their first eight albums never made it to the top of the Billboard 200, even though they sold pretty well. But on October 22, 1966, the Supremes' A Go-Go dethroned the Beatles' album Revolver. Diana Ross, Florence Ballard, and Mary Wilson made up the group at this point, after they had gone through a couple of lineup changes over the years. The Supremes' A Go-Go remained on the Billboard 200 album chart for 60 weeks. The album included the hits Love Is Like An Itching In My Heart and You Can't Hurry Love. It went on to sell 3.5 million copies worldwide. The Supremes were the only female group to reach number one on the album chart until March of 1982, when the Go-Go's album, Beauty and the Beat, made it to the top. Though the Supremes were Motown's flagship act, the members of the group faced a lot of personal and professional difficulties. Ballard left the group, and producers Holland Dozier Holland walked away from Motown. Lead singer Diana Ross left the group to go solo, 
and the cultural climate and shifts in the industry led to declining music sales for the Supremes. The lineup of the group went through more changes until the Supremes disbanded in 1977. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Or if you would prefer to email us, you can send us a message at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.